KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, March 1st. Nonprofits in Chula Vista. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Starting today, masks will no longer be required for unvaccinated Californians indoors. On Monday, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that after March 11th, masks will not be required in schools and child care settings. State Secretary of Health and Human Services Dr. Mark Galley says the shift comes after cases and hospitalizations continue to decline. This is the state level guidance. Local jurisdictions, local health jurisdictions, in the case schools and school districts, may uh, decide to keep or uh, add additional requirements beyond what the state is outlining. According to the CDC's recently released masking framework, San Diego County is in an area that still has high levels of virus transmission. The guidance suggests that everyone should mask up indoors, including at schools. A construction project scheduled to begin on Monday at the San Ysidro Port of Entry has been postponed. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says crews were going to start replacing the infrastructure on the southbound, privately owned vehicle lanes on the roadway to Tijuana. No explanation for the postponement has been given. It'll be somewhat warm over the next few days in San Diego. Highs are expected in the 70s at the coast, 80s inland, with cooler weather expected on Thursday and Friday. The National Weather Service has issued a beach hazard statement for all San Diego County beaches. It'll be in effect through early Wednesday morning. Strong surf and rip currents are expected. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Cities need nonprofits to serve their most vulnerable. But in Chula Vista, some nonprofit leaders told KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser that working with the city isn't worth the trouble. I'm going to go grab some blankets because, you know, we got the blankets from, uh, you know, the donations. It's a cool and cloudy morning outside an old warehouse in Chula Vista. Homeless people are waiting to get free showers and meet with case managers. A volunteer with the local nonprofit Community Through Hope walks around passing out warm burritos. I need to get food stamps and general relief. My sister tried to help me. Since starting in 2018, the founders of the fledgling nonprofit felt they could meet the challenge of providing basic services to Chula Vista's homeless population. They had no idea their most difficult struggle would be with city officials. After months of back and forth, we were told that we were not going to be able to use the building and we were left without a facility. Rosie Vasquez is the CEO. She says she was excited when the city promised she could sublease space from the local YMCA. 
but after months of frustrating communication, she was told she couldn't use the YMCA space after all. So myself and some volunteers went out and we were able to find the building that we're in now um, and paying a substantial amount of rent. She was finally able to open her doors almost a year later, but her issues with the city of Chula Vista were just beginning. Over the next three years, she dealt with late payments, poor communication, and the feeling that the city didn't value her services. Last year, the city opted not to renew its contract with Community Through Hope. Vasquez vowed never to do business with Chula Vista again. You're of value when they need you, and if you aren't going to do what they say, you are no longer of value. There is no thought around the work that's being done by this organization and who is really going to suffer if that organization is not up and running. And in our case, it's literally community members on the street who rely on us every day to access nutrition, to access services. This is a problem that goes beyond just one nonprofit. It's a problem for the entire community. That's according to Laura Dietrich, the associate director of the Nonprofit Institute at the University of San Diego. Especially um, in, in COVID. I mean, if you want to really look at how much government had to rely on nonprofits to reach populations um, to deliver all kinds of services, the nonprofit sector really stepped up. Yet Community Through Hope is one of several nonprofits that feel they were knocked back by the city when they stepped up. Chula Vista officials refused to be interviewed for this story. Instead, a spokeswoman sent written statements referencing some, but not all, of the issues raised by the nonprofit leaders. And the Lucky Duck Foundation and Peter for making this happen, um, for providing this much-needed shelter structure to help address the issues of homelessness in Chula Vista and South County. In May 2020, during the depths of the COVID crisis, Chula Vista Mayor Mary Salas made a big announcement. The city would set up a large tent to house hundreds of people experiencing homelessness. The tent came from the local Lucky Duck Foundation. City officials promised it would be up by December 2020. But a year later, the tent wasn't set up, says Lucky Duck Executive Director Drew Moser. They ultimately said, actually, we've, we've changed our mind. We no longer want to use this asset. And so it's it's unfortunate and frustrating that uh, that that shelter could not be up and operational throughout that time. In response, a city spokeswoman referenced a city council agenda item that said, quote, the Lucky Duck Foundation and the city of Chula Vista mutually agreed that the tent would be better utilized elsewhere with fewer limitations. Moser says that's a lie. His organization was willing to work with the city on its terms for using the tent. It just seemed like every, every time we, we did something, we'd hit a brick wall. Ruben Torres leads the nonprofit Love Thy Neighbor, which provides arts programs to underserved youth. He, too, started with high hopes in his relationship with Chula Vista. But those hopes soon faded. For example, he says city staff told him he could set up a coffee cart business at local libraries as part of a job training program. He went out and bought coffee cart equipment. But then the city went dark on him. Now we're left with the storage full of, you know, um, coffee equipment. You know, we spent thousands on. Um, there's some kind of disconnect or brick wall or something that happens in the uh, internal structure of how things operate at 
at the city of Chula Vista. In a statement, a city spokeswoman says discussions with Torres were preliminary and no contract was signed. Torres says that's not true. He was told the contract was on the city attorney's desk. He ultimately just gave up. He won't try to work with the city again. You just walk away kind of feeling like, well, should I even attempt to do anything else? And if we're approached to do anything else, I even try. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. The suffering seen in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left many asking how they can help. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado found one way they can. Thank you, Mama. I'm so sorry. Daria Nadar is getting a lot of love from her customers at her new bakery in Hillcrest. While her dream of opening Oh My Cake has become a reality, her family is living a nightmare. They're in Kiev, which is getting bombed right now. They sleep in the basement just in case, God forbid, anything will blow off next to them. She's donating 25% of her sales to a special account set up by the National Bank of Ukraine. And people are responding and buying up her delicious treats. They've been coming like crazy yesterday. The shelves were empty. I'm overwhelmed with support. Economists warn those who want to help people in Ukraine must vet organizations before sending money. Nadar says giving is as easy as cake. And cake is love. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. More than a year after San Diegans passed Measure B, the process to establish a San Diego City Commission on Police Practices is finally advancing. KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim has more. On Monday, the City Council voted unanimously to discuss the proposal establishing the Commission on Police Practices with the San Diego Police Union through the meet and confer process, which is required by state law. It's a first step in a long process as San Diego seeks to strengthen police oversight with a commission that has subpoena power. Council President Sean Elo Rivera commended Council President Pro Tem Monica Montgomery Stepp's efforts and the importance of this oversight board. It's undoubtedly true as well that um, police officers have an abundance of power and um, accountability when that power is not utilized correctly, is super important for making sure that we live up to our ideals as a country, as a city, and just as a society. Marisa Talbert is co-chair of San Diegans for Justice and a longtime advocate for more police accountability. She's concerned that too much police input will dilute the commission's power. This commission started with the community and must end with the community. The city council and community members still have time to make changes after the meet and confer process. Christina Kim, KPBS News. The county wants people to know about services available to people experiencing a mental health crisis. On Monday, the Health and Human Services Agency kicked off an ad campaign about the mobile crisis response team. The program offers an alternative to a police response by having trained mental health clinicians answer mental health calls. Yasmin Sadatzadeh is a team leader with the mobile response team. There are several clients that we have that say into the triage that they do not want police at all they do they don't want to they don't want to have them called in they're only requesting for us 
it's unfortunate there's been people who have had negative experiences with police, but we can help be kind of that force that helps get them get the help that they need without the police involvement. The program was piloted in the North County in 2021 and expanded countywide in December of last year. Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says the program has helped more than 670 people since February of last year. If you or a loved one is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call 888-724-7240 for the mobile crisis response. Team. Coming up, we speak with San Diego writer Liz Huerta, whose debut young adult novel is out today. That's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Coffee and culture are now being served at a Black-owned cafe in Sherman Heights. KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer says it's not just about the coffee. The cafe's owners want to create generational wealth in marginalized communities. The opening of Cafe X in Sherman Heights was filled with music, dance, and lots of caffeine and baked goodies. Co-owner and founder Kia Pollard opened the shop with her mom, Cynthia Johnny, and says the timing couldn't be better. With the legacy of Malcolm X inspiring this, this journey, this vision, it's super important to really commemorate that and take this time during Black History Month and all months to really um, move that forward. So for us, it's powerful and it's energizing because it's gonna set us up for the rest of the year. Pollard says the cafe will eventually be a space where they'll offer paid internship opportunities to help historically underserved youth from the area with the goal of inspiring a future generation of entrepreneurs and leaders. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. San Diego writer Liz Huerta's debut young adult novel is out today. The Lost Dreamer is a fantasy inspired by ancient Mesoamerica. It's set in a world where some women have gifts, the ability to dream the truth. The book unfolds as two young women struggle with their gifts as the world around them is rapidly changing. Huerta spoke with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's that interview. So in The Lost Dreamer, we follow two story threads about two distinct characters living very different lives. First, we meet Indir. And before we talk about her, would you read a little bit from the beginning when we first get a sense for Indir's world? Absolutely. This is the beginning of the book. The wail of a far-off conch shell woke me from my already broken sleep. I wanted to wail in response, in grief, in terror. Dogs began barking on the outskirts of the city. Unfamiliar drum rhythms pounded in the distance, echoing off the stone walls of our temple. I rose, blood rushing through my body as I swung from my hammock. An answering conch blew thrice from our own warriors, three cries for peace. Delu and Zeri stirred. 
I knew they were in dreaming, their bodies struggling to pull them back. I kissed them each softly, singing a small waking song, my voice breaking. Liz, can you tell me a little bit about who Indir is and what is on the line for her, not just in this moment, but in her world as a whole? Absolutely. Indir is a dreamer in the sacred city of Alcanza. She was born to a lineage of women who, when they sleep, can enter another dimension, kind of a spirit world, to get information to bring back for the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. The dreamers are a sacred lineage. They help all the people. And Indir has a few secrets, including the devastating realization that she is no longer able to dream. And can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that these dreamers go into what they call the dream to discover and to share? They have so many different gifts. One of the sisters has the ability to enter the dream and view weather patterns to see what crops should be harvested and which lands should go follow, what kind of animals to hunt, kind of a conversation with the natural world. One of the other sisters dreams possibility, the ability to kind of see what different decisions can play out and how they can affect the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. India, until she stopped dreaming, had the rare ability to dream truth where she could see things absolutely clearly and they would come true. Okay, and then in the other thread, we have Saya, who she has grown up not quite knowing what sets her apart with a mother who uses her for gain. So she has a a very, very different experience with dreaming and, and real life, or what you call the waking world, than Indira does. Can you talk a little bit about what a character like Saya brings to the story? Yeah, Saya has a gift, but really no context on how to use it. She's had no training. She has no lineage. All she has is her mother, who is pretty manipulative and abusive towards her and uses her gift for her own gain, claiming it as her own. So Saya has this beautiful magic, but really has no concept as to what it means and um, who she is. And in this magical realm, the ancient traditions and the power dwell primarily with women. And this also feeds tension later in the book. Can you tell me what drove this choice and, and what it means to you to have women at the helm there? Well, I've read so much fantasy over the years and for a long time it was a very male-dominated field. And that has shifted And when I went into this story, I really just wanted to center women. I wanted to center mothers and daughters and sisterhood and aunts and chosen family, just because for me, I come from such an incredible lineage of women, an incredible mom, aunts, sisters, extended women in my family. And they really are the backbone of my family. And I think in a lot of other Latinx families. So I wanted to center our stories as sacred, that we have these gifts that carry us forward and are caretakers and creators and visionaries. I just wanted to celebrate us. I also love the way that this world tackles death and memory. 
Can you talk about what inspired you to write that kind of world where there's a reverence and awe for the lost? It's it's not necessarily glorified, but it is a different approach to grief. I think that's primarily cultural. In the United States, in, in the culture we have, we don't really have a death culture. Death is very sanitized and kind of put away. Even driving around California, you don't see graveyards anywhere. And Within the cultures I grew up in, Mexican and Puerto Rican, death is a part of life. And there are these long, beautiful mourning processes. There's Day of the Dead. There's this really intense reverence of those who have become ancestors. And in my family, at least, we talk about our dead constantly as if they're still with us as a way to honor them and keep them in our stories, in our living stories. And you have referred to yourself as a working class writer before um, you do manual labor and you worked in manual labor while writing this book. How important was your work as you wrote and did it seep into the story in any way? I think so. I worked for my family's wrought iron business, um, as my sisters do. I'm not really good in the office or on the phone. I have pretty intense ADHD. So my father sent me off to be an iron painter, which I've been doing on and off for 20 years. And I think listening to audiobooks all day, every day, and working with my body and looking around at the other workers, uh, many of them of indigenous descent from Mexico and Central America, and trying to place them in a story where they were sacred, where we were sacred. And it just, it all kind of came together. And I love that I'm a working class writer. I think there are so many artists out there who are invisible because nobody tells them that they can do the work. There are incredible musicians working in hotels, in the service industry, artists of all shape and size, but we just don't know about them. So I'm hoping that my ability to publish as a working class writer gives other working class artists a little bit of hope. And that was author Liz Huerta speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Huerta will be speaking and signing books today at Mysterious Galaxy Books at 7 p.m. And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.